Good evening, everyone. You are tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block. Writer's Block airs on the third Wednesday of every month from 8 to 8.50 p.m. If you ever miss our show live, you can check us out on cjsw.com. We feature inspiring interviews, poetry and fiction readings, and other literary segments. Writer's Block is broadcast out of the University of Calgary campus. If you're interested in volunteering with us, send us an email at cjsw.writers at gmail.com. This episode of Writer's Block features an interview with Ken Rivard about his book of flash fiction, Canal Watch, followed by a literary segment by Emma Smith, and finally followed up by an interview with Rita Bozy. Without further ado, let's get started. Good evening, everyone. This is Maddie Robinson with CGSW. Tonight, we are doing an interview with Ken Rivard about Canal Watch, his new collection of flash fiction published by Mosaic Press. Hey, Ken, how are you doing? Fine, fine. Thanks for having me today, Maddie. Well, thank you. We're so glad to have you on the show today. Would you like to tell us a little bit about your new book, Canal Watch? It all started walking around a real canal in Hawaii called the Alloway Canal on the island of Oahu. I was walking uh, one day out just for a power walk to get some exercise. And this guy came by me on a bike uh, carrying a Coleman cooler in one arm. And in his basket on his bike, he had a, a Barbie doll with a patch over its eye and a couple of scrunched up bags. And I thought, geez, this guy, this guy looks interesting. He just paused for a minute as he drove by me. But my brain just takes pictures like this, click, 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 click. Whereas other people, they go click, one shot. I, I just took all these pictures of him at that moment and thought, hey, there's a book in this canal, all because of this one character coming by me on his bike. And that's how it all started. That's such an interesting story. Um, I do remember reading that near the beginning of the book, too. Mm -hmm. I did want to ask you, so why did you decide to write Canal Watch besides that moment? That's a question I can use for any of my books. You know, I, I, um, I think I was born with a curiosity that why, why do people do what they do as a writer? I'm always curious. And my two favorite words as a writer are what if. So if I can get a passing image and I simply ask myself that same question, what if this happened or what if that happened? And I've always been curious. I have, I have another book ready to go of, of uh, flash fiction, actually. I just finished it two days ago. Uh, so yeah, it's just a natural curiosity I have. I've always been curious since I was a boy. That's it about everything. I think curiosity is such an underrated value myself. People forget that it's important to ask the question. Otherwise you yeah. might not find any of the answers. Speaking mm -hmm. of your, your other book that you mentioned, um, a lot of CJSW listeners might not actually know what flash fiction is. So could you tell us what flash fiction is? Sure. Well, flash fiction basically is a, a 500 word story approximately 500 words, uh, captures a specific moment where I ask the reader to come and sit in that particular moment with me as the author and just observe what's happening. So it's not a very long, long story. It's a moment. It's a 500-word moment, if you will. I Usually I try to have a little, bit of, uh, a little bit of tension or a little bit of conflict in the story to you know, bring out the energy of the words. And it's tricky. It's tricky stuff to try to say it all in five words. Believe me, it's not, it's not easy. 
There's a lot of drafts that go on, a lot of writing drafts. I can definitely understand that. I've taken a couple of writing courses and I know they always tell you to write flash and they always say, you know, people think that flash is easier because it's less words, but it's usually oh, actually no. a lot more difficult. People have yeah. no idea. The most difficult task to give a writing student is to write the first line and only the first line. And speaking of, I wanted to mention that in this book. So there are a lot of first lines that repeat from the beginning and the end, almost kind of like a Mobius strip. So the first line of a story will also be the last line of a story. I was wondering what kind of inspired you to write it in that style, like to have a lot of the stories with a first line that was repeated at the end with a different, almost like a different context. Did you just feel it intuitively or did you choose to write it that way for a specific reason? There's several, several reasons, actually. First of all, I'm crazy about open endings on stories. A lot of those stories in, in Canal Watch are not bed-to-bed stories. And I wanted to create kind of a first line, last line as a scene to create a story portrait, frame the story which is why the first line is the same as the last line. And sometimes it has more uh, power that way too, because it's an ongoing story. There's no, a lot of those stories uh, don't progressively build towards a new understanding of human nature because not all of life works that way. Not all of life finishes with a nice tidy ending. My last book was called Mother Wild. It was a big, big novel. You know, it was huge, a big, thick thing. And it was so different from writing this. Some of the stories in Canal Watch don't have the same last line. A lot of it was intuitive. A lot of it was pure intuitive. I thought this might kind of ties the story together better by having the first line and the last line the same. And other stories, I didn't. It just depends on my intuition for the story. I think they work as such great hooks for a lot of the stories too, because you'll read just one short line, like, you know, for Holy Darkness, it just says, nothing seems gradual. And it really hooks you in because you wonder what it's about. Yeah. Um, you know why I do that? I always believe in beginning a story at a startling point, not a starting point. A startling uh, point. I like that. Yeah, because you want to grab the reader right away and pull the reader right in. So I, I like startling points that, to, to grab the reader and make them curious. So. Hey, it worked for me. <laughs> <laughs> I did want to comment a lot about how you utilize flash fiction, especially the the imagery I found was also very startling because you do have some great moments in this collection. You have an eel in this collection in the canal at one point in conversation with a man and the eel kind of emotes via its squiggly body. So it kind of smiles yeah. via its body or not. You have gardens and gardeners. You have happy couples and unhappy couples and not quite couples. You have almost everything and, and anything kind of in this canal, which I thought was really a treat because whenever you'd open a story, you had no idea where it was going to go. But I did want to ask you, even though I found myself constantly surprised by some of these stories, what surprised you the most about writing Canal Watch? Oh, how an image could spin itself into a story. Uh, I was surprised at how that process hasn't slowed down in me. You know, uh, every single story in that book began with either an overheard conversation, uh, an image, uh, maybe something I made up. Uh, the guy about the eel on the bench you mentioned earlier is based on somebody I know who has a handicapped child. And uh, I thought I'd like to get this guy into my book somehow because he has struggled, but has welcomed this child as a gift. And I know this child personally, and she really is a gift. You know, she's taught me lots, believe me. So I wanted to get her into the book. But I, so I plopped them on a bench in front of a canal and said, all right, let's have this imaginary eel coming up out of the water. And he's carrying on this conversation. Several people have read this book and said, uh, it's kind of wild. Some of your stories are a bit wild, Ken. They're quite imaginative. And I said, <laughs> yeah, well, it was, it was fun to do that. 
know? Yeah, I think it's liberating to not have too many boundaries to to realism because when you when you go past your own constraints of what is realistic and what's not, you can actually move into something even more realistic. Cause it's like you said at the beginning, that image of that man on the bike and everything, a lot of things that don't seem realistic actually do happen in real life. I mean, I live downtown in Calgary. I can tell you, I see things that are right out of a novel every single day. (laughs) I see a lot of crazy. So I think people, it's good that you liberate because honestly it is, it's a cliche, but truth is often stranger than fiction for sure. Um, And a lot of these people, I never thought they were too unrealistic in the slightest. I thought it seemed very much like a lively canal for sure. But I can see why you would be inspired by the the setting of the canal because it's always moving. uh, I've been signing books at bookstores in Calgary. and A lot of people want to know two things. How much of this book is autobiographical or how much of it is real? And uh, I always say to people, you know, if the story appears real to you, then it works. I've done my job as a writer. That's my common answer to people. (laughs) I think that's a great answer. And I think the imagery in the collection actually really works in your favor because I'm just flipping through it right now. But I have so many sections I've underlined and things like this because I feel like the imagery really pulls the reader in. There's one about stairs, and this was also dedicated to someone, and it mentions the language of the stairs is ambiguous at best which I thought was such a great line because stairs are always a little ambiguous because you don't know where they're going. Um, So I think language like that definitely helps. I did want to ask, so what would you like anyone who has read the collection to do after reading Canal Watch? What do you have in mind? Allowing themselves to wonder, to be curious, to be inquisitive, asking themselves if any of these stories appears to be real to them. Could any of these stories actually happen around a canal? As I said earlier, if they appear real, I would like the readers to say, you know what, I'm going to suspend even my disbelief for a moment and say, you know, this could happen. This possibly could happen around a canal. I mean, Ken Rivera's writing is not that wild. I could see somebody like this doing this around a canal. And I, I, would, I would like readers to just, you know what, if they really like the book or they have some questions, they can contact me through my website. Uh, I've had people contact me and say, this book really made me angry or in the past, you know, or this book made me laugh, or I have a, an aunt like that, or I have a, a father who tried that, or, or somehow I, I like to see writing connected to real life somehow, but I also like to see people suspend their disbelief. We spend our whole lives becoming and being inhibited. You know, we get careers, we get jobs, you might get a partner and have children, so you're working your butt off, and then you don't have time to suspend your disbelief, which I think is healthy for all of us to do. And, and just do some wondering. So that's what I hope readers will do, that they'll do some wondering. It's great that you said that because I'm definitely at a stage where I'm trying to suspend the serious stuff and keep going with me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm planning on taking my bike near the Bow River today and maybe suspending my disbelief there for sure. But sure. I think that's, that's definitely a good goal for any book. I always thought that a great book is just a book that you read and you're happy that you read it, but a, a book that you read that you almost want to go to an experience or it makes you want to write a book or it makes you want to go you know, experience something for yourself. I I interviewed a photographer recently. And one thing that I loved is when you see a really good photo, it's like a really good book. It doesn't just make you go, oh, wow, that's great. It makes you go, I want to do that myself and be there myself, right? Almost like you want to go to the canal and also people watch and also maybe Mm -hmm. talk to an eel perhaps. (laughs) Um, For sure. So I did have a couple more questions for sure. sure. One of the questions I wanted to ask is, 
these are very short stories and sometimes you do see characters that you almost think you've seen before from other stories but you're not you're never quite sure but i wanted to ask if you were ever tempted to expand any of these short stories to a novel if there is one in your mind that you just couldn't get rid of that you wanted to expand or maybe write a sequel for them or if oh, that yeah. moment is just that moment actually there are several stories in that book uh, quite a few i sh should be more honest about it <laughs> there's uh, quite a few that i could easily turn into a novel the one about the stairs that you mentioned earlier, that's probably the most spontaneous piece I wrote in that book. It just came out. I hardly revised it. Most other pieces I revised, but that one was totally spontaneous. And I thought I could write a story about this guy spending his life on stairs. Uh, and his issue could be maybe a fear of going downstairs and start, you know, begin with a startling point of, we all have, we all have the levels of fear, you know, whatever that may be, but how it takes shape. But a lot of them, I can't remember every title, but there's quite a few of them were kind of like teasers. I said, geez, Ken, you could take this and, you know, write 70,000 words on it, you know, to create this amazing story. The stairs is one. Women telling women. I don't know if you remember that one about the bar. I think I was at your reading for that one, if I remember yeah. correctly. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. The Women Telling Women, I think it's called. It's based on a photograph, that story. And really, uh, and a little bit of imagination, I suppose. But it's... Um, I was kind of fascinated by seeing these women sitting at a kind of a cafe bar. This happened around a real canal. But the actual story was a combination of what I saw or what I imagined I saw and a real photograph. And so I dedicated the, the piece to a guy named Dave Foray. He gave me this photograph and I thought I could just go on and on about this photograph. I love photographs. If somebody, my brain works in photographs. Although I'm lousy with a camera, I can't even take pictures of my cell phone properly, you know? So, <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Yeah, so there's lots of stories in there. Too many to, to tell you right now. Um, but that's even better for the reader because the reader could say, hey, you know what? I'm going to make my own ending here or I can continue this story. And I love that. I've had some readers in the past, even with my last book, which was a novel, big, big novel, you know, uh, people said, oh, are you going to write a sequel? Are you going to follow it up? What happened to the characters in this big, big book? And, and I, I never did do a sequel, but uh, I love having readers question the book and wonder about the book and attach it to their own lives somehow, you know, relate to it on a personal level. That's my favorite kind of feedback of readers is when they say, um, you know, this book touched me. If, if I, my words can touch you somehow, I'm happy. I've done my job. That's all I need to know. Really. I guess one of the other last questions I had was in this flash fiction collection, you feature some in first person with a first person narrator interacting with someone or something or yeah. the environment around them. But then some are just purely done in third person as if there's no first person narrator there. I was wondering how you made that choice and why you decided to flip back and forth. And if I did that for variety purposes for the reader, telling a story in a first person. It's, it's a favorite way of telling a story for me, uh, generally. My novel was told in a first-person singular voice, kind of a voice. This book, though, I wanted to experiment with different approaches, having a third-person omniscient kind of onlooker, looking on and watching something. And other times, I put myself right into the story. Actually, I even used my name once, which I rarely, rarely do in my writing. I've actually used my first name in one or two stories in the book. I wanted to do a variety of approaches to the book. That's, that's the main reason why I did that. 
and probably intuitively the story could be told better by either first person or third person omniscient kind of uh, uh, voice. Uh, so it just depended on the story, number one. And number two, I did it for sake of variety for the reader, give the reader a little bit of a break there, yeah. And it's interesting that you mentioned you use your own name because there actually is a scene in this book that almost breaks the fourth wall a little bit where um, I believe there's a lady talking to someone and she mentions, you know, that she's just afraid of, I think, books or stories. Yeah. And she even says, imagine if someone wrote a story about this canal, but she's in a book about the canal. So I thought (laughs) (laughs) that was a really great moment that you kind of inserted a little bit of authorial humor in there. A little bit of crazy irony was thrown in there, you know. Yes. And, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I did, you know, that I wanted to finish that book on a positive note. Uh, I don't know if you know the last, very last story, walking down a canal and I see the spider's web, and it sounds like Charlotte's web or something, but the word hope is carved into the spider's web. You know, there's a lot of, there's some quite a few dark stories in that book too, of anger and frustration, whatever. But I really like catching people uh, when they're vulnerable and when they're resilient. There's something quite beautiful about that, about human beings when they're vulnerable. I don't mean they're bleeding all over you for every little thing, but vulnerability has a very expansive uh, uh, definition. It's not just, uh, you know, my, I have a sore nose or something. And resilience, I'm always amazed at the resilience of the human spirit, how people bounce back from advers- adversarial situations. and. Uh, so I guess that's why I write books. Those two words is uh, trying to handle vulnerability with a little bit of tenderness and resilience with a little bit of celebration, maybe, you know, because uh, we all need to celebrate things periodically. It's not it's not all bleak out there. For sure. Uh, and that, that last story is actually a little celebratory in a way, I think. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't tell you the, the outcome of the of the contest for the photograph, but I like to think that he would win. (laughs) He probably would win. Yeah. Yeah. He probably would win for sure. For sure. For sure. Um, The other thing about the book, uh, writing those uh, 500 word stories, typically when you read a a bed to bed story, you know, there's a, you wake up, you go through a challenge, gets worse, worse. And then there's a kind of a sliding scale and you go back home, go to bed, your story's over with. And people know how it ends. I've had some readers say, why didn't you use a, a bed-to-bed story? And I said, because I'm crazy about open endings. I love stories that have open endings because anything is possible, you know, anything. And I like that about writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And real life doesn't need a sequel. It just goes and goes and goes. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. you know, real life doesn't just happen um, like a bed-to-bed story. There's, there's variations, things happen, we get challenged again, or we're disappointed. Most human beings have expectations sometimes that are not met. I mean, there's all kinds of issues in human behavior, you know. So, um, you know, when Canal Watch came out, I was, um, I hold it in my hand and I smell a paper for about two days. I just go, <laughs> and I hold it and I just carry it around in my jeans for a while and, and pat it. And then I, I just, uh, and I'm afraid to read it sometimes because I thought, oh, my God, there's always one or two typos in every book I've ever read. And I've read thousands of books, but you know that yourself. I'm sure you'll find the odd typo. And it's always if you're the writer, you never see the typos, but other people do. I always catch other people's typos, but not my own. So I, I've had editors work with me and they have computer programs that go through, you know, the, the proofs of the book. And same with Canal Watch. I spent three days 
proofing it on my own. And then they had editors proofing it. And I thought, but still, I found a couple and I thought, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's just Murphy's Law with editing, I think. Yeah, good point. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> so what did you like? What did you like most about the book yourself? What, what, I, that's a great question. I'm, I'm glad that you asked me because people usually I'm the one asking the questions. Oh, oh think, sorry. <laughs> I think what I liked about it, it had so much imagery that kind of bordered on, I wouldn't call it surreal, but it was very real for sure. Um, and it was the lines for sure. Like even just the way it's described, there's the one where there's the bird stealing the, um, the, the McDonald's and the, the candy from the man on the bench. And yeah. you could describe it just as, oh, a bunch of birds are pecking at food, but these two, these two birds steal candy and you write, but these two birds disappear across the canal, hopefully finding their own solutions. So a lot yeah. of it's almost, it's almost like the moment's bigger than what it is, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Even though it's a small moment, there's a lot more in the moment. Mm-hmm. which I, I think is what I liked about it the most. And also just the fact that as I've gotten older, I find my mental process when reading and writing and creating is, is almost more like looking at an object and also seeing kind of the potential of something there. Yeah, Things get very slippery and you wonder if, you know, a scoop of ice cream can become a planet, can become a star, can become a, a flower, like that, that yeah. kind of thing. So I think that was my favorite part, mostly because I also really... um appreciate flash fiction and I do read a lot of it because of our show we we always feature really short stories so it's usually a lot of flash Mm -hmm. and so I also just enjoy reading flash fiction as well so that would probably be my answer for any listeners looking to buy the novel (laughs) or the book (laughs) (laughs) the basic image or theme in the book most people look for books there's either a thematic connection or an imagistic connection some kind of an imagistic thing in poetry you'll see a lot of that or there's some kind of a running theme throughout the book. And um, this book is about pain, joy, and what it means to ever be so human. And, you know, a startling image, it's amazing what a startling image can do to get something down on paper in terms of a story. I, um, I don't know why, if it's just imagination or what. The person who wrote the blurb on the back of the book, for example, said, you never know what's going to happen next with these stories. And that... Uh, I wanted it that way. I didn't want to have a very tight thematic link to every story, except the idea of a canal, maybe. But I wanted to have total freedom to pick anybody and anybody. And I could plop, I plop people around that canal that weren't even around a canal ever. I just made it up. Don't tell anybody that. (laughs) Don't worry. I won't reveal the secret that fiction writers are making it up. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) Or I have a couple of friends uh, who I greatly admire who are in there. And I just uh, plopped them on a bench or on the edge of the canal and said, I'm going to, you mind if I write something about you? And they said, sure. And there's a couple in there that I did that with. I thought, why not? Uh, Writing should celebrate uh, the human spirit in any way possible. I think that does conclude our interview on Canal Watch, as long as you have no more questions. No, I'm okay, Maddie. (laughs) Okay, perfect. Thanks for having me today. Well, (laughs) thank you so much for any readers who are looking. uh, Canal Watch is written by Ken Rivard and is published by Mosaic Press. So you can pick it up at a local bookstore near you. Um, I'd like to say thank you again for coming on to our podcast tonight and having a great interview with us. Good luck. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. For those who just tuned in, that was my interview with Ken Rivard on his book of flash fiction, Canal Watch. You can buy Canal Watch from a local bookstore near you.
CJSW, no adverbs allowed. Coming up next, we have a literary segment with Emma Smith. We would like to congratulate Emma on her new career in production. This will unfortunately be her last weird book segment. Emma always has something cool to say for our show, and we will miss her and wish her the best of luck. Without further ado, here's the segment. A few weeks ago, a friend of mine from out of town told me she was coming into Calgary for a visit, and that she wanted to check out a local antique store. Little did I know, it would spark a new obsession in me and lead me to discover my new favorite book. My friend sent me a video that had popped up on TikTok of a hidden gem in the city, the Iron Crow, which boasted 14,000 square feet of vintage treasures. We knew we had to go. Deep in an industrial district near Blackfoot Trail sits the Iron Crow, large yet unassuming. There are vintage finds of all kinds, from antique classics like fine china and old tin boxes, to large artifacts from the past, like an old, fully intact traffic light. The industrial space is neatly organized into themed sections, making it easier to browse. There is a kids section with old toys dating back to the 1800s, a garden section with old framed windows and gardening tools, and maybe the most memorable of all, an old church section with a giant wooden cross, a bunch of old Christian paintings, and even coffins. One of the coffins had been converted into a functional table, a true Gothic fantasy. As a vintage photography enthusiast, I was thrilled when we came across a table stacked full of old photos and postcards. We spent almost an hour looking through the piles of discarded memories. Just when we were getting ready to leave, we noticed a small glass cabinet next to the table of photographs. There were a bunch of old cameras, and to our absolute delight, some authentic Victorian stereoscopes with boxes and boxes of old stereo cards. Dating back to the Victorian era, the stereoscope was a popular early source of entertainment. A stereoscope is a photographic device that uses two images from slightly different angles to create a 3D effect. By peering through the two lenses of the stereoscope, scenes from the past that have been captured on the accompanying stereo cards are seemingly brought back to life. The antique store had an incredible collection of stereo cards to experiment with. There was a captivating scene from the Paris Exposition in 1889. The illusion created by the stereoscope made it seem like you could reach out and touch the large white marble statues that towered through the windowed gallery. Another card offered a 3D image of the moon. Through the stereoscope, it seemed perfectly round and the craters were brought into full view. The description on the back by the photographer explained how the two images were taken on different nights and were of different phases of the moon. Needless to say, I left the antique store a couple hundred dollars poorer with a new to me 130 year old stereoscope and a handful of old stereo cards. As a graduate student researching Victorian photographs, my immediate instinct the next day was to read about some of the history of the Victorian stereoscope. This is what led me to discover that Brian May, the guitarist and queen known for his academic accomplishments as a physicist, is also a stereoscopist. He is heavily involved in the London Stereoscopic Society and has co-written with three other authors three incredible books on the topic. Each book comes with a foldable modern stereoscope, Brian May's own invention, so that the reader can experience the 3D effect of the stereo photographs featured in the book, many of them from Brian May's own private collection. 
The first book, A Village Lost and Found, showcases over 30 years of research into T.R. Williams' 1856 series of stereo photographs of an idyllic Oxfordshire village. The book description proclaims that it is something of a detective story. The village was only identified in 2003 as Hinton Waldrist, and the photographs have provided unique insight into what life was like in the English country in the Victorian period. The book also highlights the photographer's relationship to his photographs, which is described as Hitchcock-like, in that he appears occasionally and mysteriously in his own photographs. The second book, published in 2013, is The Diableries, Stereoscopic Adventures in Hell, and features photographs, as the title alludes to, of a hellish underworld. The photographs are taken of scenes, mostly sculpted in clay, by two French sculptors, Pierre Hennetier and Louis Habert. Many of these scenes were commentaries on daily events, in a society where the news was heavily censored. One example of this in the book is of a macabre train station scene. A train emerging from a dark tunnel carries the devil and his demons and is surrounded by skeletons. The book explains how in 1842 there was a train crash in Versailles that killed over 50 people and was followed by many more crashes in the years to come. The image is dark with a hint of whimsy, perhaps hinting at a cathartic medium of expression. Even though I would love to own each of these books, I picked up the most recent publication, Stereoscopy at the Dawn of 3D. This book covers the wide-ranging history of this magnificent technological feat. Scattered throughout the book are stereo images of all kinds. Stereo cards served a tourist function, allowing people to bring home a piece of the Great Pyramid of Giza or Niagara Falls. There are also rare photographs of historical figures. I was thrilled to see a 3D image of one of my favorite Victorian authors, Charles Dickens. Brian May's passion for stereoscopy is evident as one of his life's major works. He points out that these magical devices from the past have often gone under-researched and overlooked. If it wasn't for this chance find in an antique store, I would never have known what I was missing out on. If this segment has you curious about Stereoscopy 2, you can find all of these books I've described on the London Stereoscopic Company's website. You can purchase books through them and support continued efforts to keep the art of stereoscopy alive, or check around used bookstores, either online or in person. I know I found a few. If you don't want to commit to a full collection, you can pick up your own portable OWL stereoscopic viewer on the LSC site for under $20 and use it to peruse online collections. Have fun time traveling. For those who just tuned in, you are listening to Writer's Block on CGSW 90.9 FM. If you just tuned in, you can listen to our full episode on cgsw.com. That was our weird book segment with Emma Smith. Coming up next, we have an interview with Jenny Kwong and Rita Bozi on her new novel, When I Was Better. Stay tuned! We love our cliffhanger endings on CJSW. Hi, my name is Jenny Kwong for Writer's Block. Today I'm speaking with Rita Bozy about her new book, When I Was Better. This is a new title that was just launched in Calgary at the end of June, so I guess 
Tell me, when did you start thinking about writing this book, and what made this a good time for you to release it? Uh, well, f funny you should ask, because I think I was thinking about this book in my mother's womb. <laughs> That's the uh, bigger answer. But about 11 years ago, I started thinking about writing a novel. I had a this sound may, may sound crazy, but I had a lot of uh, psychics tell me I was going to write a novel, but I didn't even know how to type. But there was, and I didn't even know what I had to say, but there was a story of my father escaping Hungary after the end of the 1957 revolution that always stuck with me. It was an image of watching him run in snow, dodging bullets, trying to run to freedom. And these were bedtime stories that my mother used to tell me of the revolution, of their time apart. So I think that image really captivated me. And uh, I started writing from there about 11 years ago. So it was a very long journey, nine years of writing, 25 drafts, 75 rejections. And the release date really had to do with when a publisher was finally willing to take a chance on this book. And uh, most sadly, it, it corresponds with what's happening in the Ukraine right now. Many of us from with parents from former East Bloc countries are really feeling this time in a very poignant and tragic way. So, yeah, it's been 11 years of uh, persistence. Tell me about the characters in the book. You have Isvan and Teresa. Well, they are not heroes. Like in so many stories, we've got sort of a hero's journey. They are traumatized, but they don't know it. They are always being batted around by life, by, author by the authoritarian regime, by war, by poverty, uh, by depression, by distress. I mean, they're living through the reign of terror. And if anyone has ever lived through a reign of terror. This is when authoritarian regimes are persecuting people, are hunting down people because they have uh, different beliefs than the going regime. So it was, a, it was a time where these characters are trying to have relationships, but they're always in a state of vigilance and terror. So, you, you know, if anyone's had PTSD, they know that hypervigilance wreaks havoc with relationships. So there are two people trying to preserve their love in the midst of trying to survive. And it's not easy. And it's not glorified. It's not glorified in this novel. There are ugly things in this novel, but there's also humor and beauty as well. So these, they're two characters that are really trying to endure. Uh, they're separated for seven years. And if you know a refugee story, it is not simple. It is not just leaving your country and finding home somewhere else. You often are uh, disconnected from loved ones you lose a family member while you're running and then you hook up with them years later or never do again. So it's a, it's really about endurance and faith, but also a lot of despair as well. So mm -hmm. these, these characters aren't always very good to each other, but uh, they stay together in the long run. They try to uh, preserve the love somehow. And so how were you able to develop the voice over time of both Teresa and Itvan as they gain in their understanding of the world they live in, as well as the, their voice of strong opposition to the, what's happening there? I, I've always been deeply fascinated by my parents and what they've gone through. So I traveled to Hungary many, many times. I spoke to a lot of relatives. I researched. I watched movies and documentaries. And what I did was I embodied these characters. I actually put them inside my own body so I could feel what they were going through. And some days I was, you know, seriously a puddle on the floor, deeply in deep pain, really feeling from my body what they had gone through. So, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't hard to write my mother's voice. 
I, I mean, I fictionalized it. Teresa is based on my mother, but I fictionalized the story. She's such an intriguing woman, so resilient and spirited and so feisty that it wasn't hard to embody her. And same with Ishtvan. You know, I, I think when you're a child, seeing your parents suffering and uh, see their, you know, developmental gaps, you end up as a child out of love taking care of your parents. So it's not hard to know these people. It's almost like you know them better than you know yourself. <laughs> so it was out of my own trauma that I was able to know them. And then I had to sort of come to know myself after the book. And I guess tell me a little bit more about their relationship with their parents as they were going through this uh, traumatic uh, time period. You know, Ishtan and Teresa, Ishtan had a more troubled relationship with his own mother and a more loving relationship with his stepfather. And Teresa has a more connected relationship with her own family. You know, some families are able to, in the midst of so many trials and tribulations, come together instead of split apart. So some families come together and they find a way to sing songs, tell jokes, get through the daily routine, where uh, other families, for other reasons, different personalities, they split apart and everyone goes at it alone. And so this is what happens for Ishtvan. He goes at it alone, which is sort of the less human way to do things. And Teresa sticks with her family. You know, everyone has different circumstances, different levels of wounding. So it's two opposite stories of one going at it alone, one sticking with family. And, you know, their parents are struggling as well. Teresa's family, they're peasants, they're paying reparations to Russia, trying to fill quotas, grain quotas. So they're struggling. You know, everyone was struggling at the time. <laughs> as we are right now, we're seeing what's happening in the world, like the, the implications of Ukrainian farmers not being able to plant their crops and the, the trickle effect all over the world. So, you know, as parents, how, how do you take care of your children when you're barely making it by? It's difficult. You were part of the faculty in the theater program at Mount Royal University. How was being in theater help with your storytelling development? Being in theater, I mean, it's so strange because I, I think that maybe being in theater and loving film helped me see the scenes. I was always sort of like feeling like I was in the middle of a movie when I was writing my novel. <laughs> like I could see, you know, the, the bomb blasts. I could see the wreckage. I could see what they were wearing. I could see what was in the vicinity. So I think with theater, you have this way of building, building scenes in your mind to make it more alive and real. So I think every time I wrote a scene, I entered into the scene and tried to create it. And I kind of, I heard it, I felt it, I smelled it, I touched it, I tasted it. It's kind of really, really writing from the senses. And then storytelling, I, I kind of realized that I'm kind of a natural storyteller and I didn't really know that. It sort of came out of me as I, I, I love details. I, I love seeing the whole thing. So I think I kind of developed that as I was writing the book, this ability to tell stories and, and then learn what story I was trying to tell. But it took a while to figure that out. <laughs> I found the passages to be cinematic, and I was able to visualize the scenes as the characters were trying to survive during a difficult time. Exactly, and I was, I was actually thinking, I think when I was writing it, I was writing hoping that one day it might be made into a, a, an episodic, a short episodic. I think I was deeply influenced as a child when I saw Dr. Zhivago, that film, and I watched it over and over and over again, and those images stayed with me again. So, you know, I think that we bring our whole lives to writing a novel. Everything that we've ever done comes in there. Even, you know, my days of acting and dancing and music. We just have to bring the richness of our lives into writing a novel. And then that's when it really sings. 
since you uh, just uh, launched this uh, book, um, where do you see it going uh, going forward, I guess? Well, that's a really great question because obviously I would love it to get into as many hands as possible, but I have no control over that. Sure, a writer always wants a literary prize. <laughs> I mean, it would, it would always be nice to be recognized for the, the work taken. I think, you know, books get written so quickly these days. And there's something about the richness of taking a long time to write something where every word matters. But as I said, I would I would love for someone to pick it up. I don't want it to be a movie. I want it to be an episodic because I think there's so much in there that it would be best stretched over about eight episodes. So seriously, if there are any directors or writers out there, I'd love to collaborate on it. That's where I would really like to see it go. With the launch of the novel taking place at this time to coincide with another war in Eastern Europe, how do you see the dialogue taking place with what you've written? <clears throat> well, th- thank you for asking me that very vital question. I really appreciate it because uh, what I do for a living is I'm a trauma therapist. I'm really concerned about intergenerational trauma and the effect on, on our children in the world. You know, their, their futures are being robbed. I would like to really have a conversation about what refugees go through before they even land in a country not of their choice. They need relationship, and that's sometimes the hardest thing to form when you're displaced. So I would like to have a a larger conversation on the fact that one in 78 people in the world right now are forced to leave their homes, and this is just getting worse. And what are we going to do about this? And how are we going to support children? And right now, I'm just utterly heart-wrenched, broken about seeing elderly people displaced. They're at the ends of their lives, and they're going through this. So, you know, I really believe in the work of the UNHR, and I actually uh, donated proceeds from my book launch to the effort. I mean, it's such a drop in the bucket, but we're going to need to have more conversations about how we support refugee families, because it's not just getting them settled, learning the language, getting home, finding jobs. Now, then we're going to have to deal with how to help process the trauma that's living in their bodies and their psyches and their souls. It's a lot of work, and we're going to need to band together as societies to make refugees very welcome and then help them process what they've been through. Maybe I'd like to, when we say what's the future of this book, I'd like to have more conversations beyond panels discussing this. How do we set up support? Thank you for your time today. And anything you'd like to add? No, but I just want to really thank you for your fabulous questions, Jenny, and for this time. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, this is Jenny Kwong, and that was my interview with author Rita Boise about her new novel, When I Was Better. Raised by Hungarian refugees, Rita is a somatic, relational trauma and psychedelic-informed therapist and a multidisciplinary creator, playwright, and retired professional actor and dancer. For those who just tuned in, that was our interview with Jenny Kwong and Rita Bozi. You are tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block. Writer's Block airs on the third Wednesday of every month from 8 to 8.50 p.m. Mountain Time. If you just tuned in halfway through, no worries. You can always check out this episode on cjsw.com. This episode also featured an interview with Ken Rivard about his book Canal Watch, as well as a fun, weird book segment by Emma Smith. To top off this episode of Writer's Block, we will continue our fun segment from last month about a weird book I read in my teenage years. Stay tuned!
Last month, I decided to take an old novel from my past and reread it with the eyes of an adult. The book I chose was Suzanne Wayne's Barcode Tattoo, the story of a sci-fi future in which each human being, at the age of 17, is required to receive a tattoo in the shape of a barcode. The book, originally conceived in 2004, predicts a future in 2025 where the world looks strangely similar to ours but with marginal differences. The protagonist, Kayla Reed, chooses to rebel against the choices of those in power around her and rejects the code. This choice changes her life forever. For this feature on Writer's Block, I picked up the second novel in the series, one that I hadn't read. The sequel is called The Barcode Revolution. The Barcode Revolution was a new experience for me as I never finished the original series at the age of 14, and I was always curious about the resolution of the ending. The second novel follows the journey of Kayla as she joins the rebellion against the barcode tattoo. Kayla is helped by various friends and allies, including a rebellion group called the Drakians. This group seeks to discover what is hidden in the tattoo, while also supporting other rebellion members that are in violation of the law that haven't gotten one. When Kayla joins their cause, she travels across North America through mountain and desert, searching for information. Along the way, she meets not only potential love interests, but other girls that look stunningly like her and she goes on a quest to find out why. One of the fascinating elements of this novel is how it plays with the idea of deception. When a character will do or say something in a certain chapter, often that action will be paralleled by a completely different recount in a next chapter that is formatted like a newspaper article. In this way, Suzanne Wayne is able to critique the world around us and able to paint a world where facts have become skewed under the reign of a different kind of media. While the plot has no main villain, Global One is the largest company in the story, heavily merged with the government and the closest thing in the novel to a main antagonist. Global One owns not only all post and media but is also a shareholder in many different biotech companies around the world. Most corporations and other entities are either owned or heavily influenced by the corporate monolith. While the company appears benign on the outside, of course, as it is a novel, Kayla discovers the issues lying underneath. The barcode tattoo created and promoted by Global One not only has social issues that come along with it, it also promotes behavioral patterns as Kayla discovers the corporate entity has bigger plans of population behavioral control. Their plans include something curious called a post-human era, a future free of disease, aging, and even death. While it sounds good on the surface, there's something nefarious hiding underneath. While I don't want to spoil the ending for the series, I will admit that this book caught my attention a lot more than the first one. There was a plot twist at the end that completely caught me off guard as well, and I liked how it was built up over the series. The novel is a quick read, and maybe that's one of its problems, but it also serves as a great entryway into the potential of our future society. I'm the first to admit that certain lines spooked me as I compared them to our reality. While Suzanne Wayne predicted this novel 20 years ago, she knows what she's doing, as certain details ring true after she published her original novel. Overall, it was fun to take an old book from my adolescence and read it again with new eyes. If you're feeling downtrodden and nothing new has caught your attention, try picking up an old novel and seeing what you catch in it today. And with that, that concludes our episode on the Barcode Tattoo series. Pick it up at a local bookstore near you.